The first book I was assigned in college was Kurt Vonnegut's debut novel, Player Piano. The book describes a post-World War II dystopia in which industrial machines perform all manufacturing work supported by an elite class of engineers and managers. The citizens who don't score well on the machine-tabulated aptitude models are assigned to a vast core of menial and service workers called the Reeks and Wrecks. This lower class is portrayed as childish thinkers, always subjected to the judgment of the upper class and, as they mostly are in today's real world, sequestered in their own neighborhoods and left to, the, and left to mostly fend for themselves. Near the end of the story, a main character describes the situation like this. The sovereignty of the United States resides in the people, not in the machines. And it's the people's to take back if they so wish. The machines have exceeded the personal sovereignty willing, willingly surrendered to them by the American people for the good government. Machines and organization and pursuit of efficiency have robbed the American people of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Welcome to another virtual Highlands Bunker, friends and comrades. Uh, I'm here in the shadow of Rockford Tower, deep in the heart of the Delaware Way. Uh, Carl is producing from a fully secured, undisclosed location north of the Brandywine. And our guest tonight uh, is Nicole Askoff. Nicole has a PhD, PhD in sociology from Johns Hopkins and is currently an editor-at-large for Jacobin. She has written a new book titled The Smartphone Society, Technology, Power, and Resistance in the New Gilded Age, published by Beacon Press. Um, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Um, so I know it sounds uh, sort of cliche or uh, formulaic at this point, but uh, how are you holding up? I'm doing well. Uh, I think I'm one of the lucky ones in the sense that... Um, I can still earn money by working at home and my husband can as well. Uh, so we're not in the situation that millions of other Americans are in and we're all in good health. So, you know, minor struggles. Yeah, I, I sort of feel the same way. Um, you know, my wife and I are pretty comfortable. Uh, my, my wife's a public health nurse, so she is out treating patients two or three days a week, which is a little stressful. But, you know, um, all things considered, uh, we're comfortable and healthy and safe, so you know I sort of look at it like that. I'm I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Um, actually, just today, which was interesting, um, we've been having um, sort of little open houses where we'll sit on the stoop with some friends from the neighborhood, or we'll have something in the back garden, and another friend will do it. Uh, we had a little lunch where a couple people were hanging out, kind of walking around the neighborhood. And uh, I walked out into the garden, and I heard uh, my wife, Nurse Susan, and my brother Kenny talking about. People conditioned to scroll for the news and aggregate likes scooped up by algorithms. And I, I thought, wow, I have a huge discussion tonight with someone. I'm so glad you're saying this. I'm going to write this down. <laughs> um, so, yeah, your new book is basically about sort of about that um, so, and, and looking at society and politics uh, through that lens, which is probably the greatest technological advancement in the last at least 10 years or 50 years. Um, you know, the phone. Um, but the first thing you do is sort of frame the, the, the issue um, 
And I thought it was very interesting because a lot of people talk about how phones are good. A lot of people talk about the sort of the bad uh, sociological aspects, advertising and things. But um, you delve into this idea of technological sort of reductionism or determinism. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting um, that you started with Vonnegut's Player Piano. Uh, I love that book. Um, and I think it's an interesting book because it, it gives us a lot of uh, creative ways to think about the potential impact of technology um, and also sort of, you know, what kind of a society do you have when you take away people's ability to work and, and, and by extension their ability to feel like they're a productive member of society. Um, but Vonnegut slips a little bit into technological determinism in his language, I think because he's very poetic. Uh, but when we talk about the machine doing this or the machine doing that, um, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that machines don't drive society, uh, people do. We, we create machines and use them to organize society um, in the ways that we see fit, often according to the kind of power hierarchies that are already existing and machines tend to reinforce those hierarchies. So I think it's important um, to keep that in mind when you're, whether you're talking about right in this moment, smartphones, or in the past, I actually start the book um, with a comparison to automobiles, um, in part because I used to study the auto industry and so I think about it a lot, but also because um, it's, it's sort of, a machine that's emblematic of uh, society in the 20th century, right? It's sort of the defining commodity. And so I think about smartphones as the defining commodity of the present moment, not because I think that they are driving change, but rather that if we look at them a little bit more closely, uh, we can really have a kind of window into some of the dynamics that are creating this moment that we're living in. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories are well-known but very stark um you know obviously in, in one hand you see people being able to access tons of information um able to get services or in in cases that we've seen you know all too often document sort of police brutality uh but we then juxtapose that against sort of the gig economy um and surveillance um, I heard a story this week, um, I listened to the Sam Cedar podcast, and he had a friend who went to Singapore, uh, because his wife is from Singapore, uh, and they went to stay with family, but, you know, obviously because of the pandemic, they were checked at the airport, made to go to a particular place, and then some days later, um, he went out to the pharmacy or somewhere in the neighborhood, and he was met by police, because he knew he was there, they knew he was breaking the quarantine from coming from out of the country. And so, yeah, you have two sort of two very um, stark ends of the spectrum, the very good and the very bad. Um, how do you break through those things? I mean, um, how, do you, how do you look at sort of bridging that divide um, in, the, in, the, in the real world? Yeah, I think that that's really great the way that you posed it. And, and, this, and in this particular moment, certainly we're seeing um, some of these kind of stark tensions and this, you know, kind of defining contradiction between the way an ordinary person uses their phone, right, to get information or connect with loved ones or to find entertainment um, and, and the kind of control and design of our phones by, um, you know, a few big tech companies 
and also the role of, of governments and being able to kind of hijack our phones to surveil us. And certainly, you know, the kind of public private partnerships that are being developed in the moment to kind of deal with this pandemic. We, you know, rightly want to use technology where we can, but there's, you know, some real questions being raised as to kind of what the new normal will look like in terms of surveillance and how much um, you know, our kind of relationship with our smartphones has facilitated what could potentially be a much greater level of surveillance moving forward and, and you know, how we actually need to push back against that. Yeah. Um, I think the big part for me is a chapter you call the New Titans. Um, you wrote something interesting, so I'll read it because I, I like this. Um, Posing as earnest geeks who just wanted to give us cool stuff, the New Titans snuck up on us. And I feel like, um, you know, in this case, one of the ways that the phone became so integrated is because the good was highlighted and, and really the, the bad was not, uh, it was hidden on purpose. Um, and, and, and so what you got was, you know, the, the pitch, um, but how it was being paid for, or how it was being sustained, um, no one really understood, it, for me, almost until it was too late. Um, and that has created a situation where we just have really new corporate titans, no different or, or somewhat different than maybe a Wall Street titan, um, but uh, similarly having a similar impact on, you know, wealth inequality uh, and some of the economic problems we have. Um, so I, I thought that was a very interesting uh, sort of way to look at that. Yeah, I think um, the way I kind of frame it in, in that chapter and in the book in general is I, I make a kind of loose comparison to the kind of giants of, of the tech world today, right? Facebook and Google and Amazon um, with the kind of robber barons of the, the late 19th century. And I do that not just because they're incredibly wealthy, which they are, um, but because they actually have so much power to kind of shape the, the tech landscape. Indeed, if we think about, uh, you know, a couple com companies, right? Google, uh, Facebook, these companies have made the software that, that really is fundamental to economic, social, and political life today in many ways. And I think that that's something that in the past few years, we've started to become more aware and more wary of this kind of dynamic. And, and we are starting to understand the need to actually not just let these companies regulate themselves, but rather to actually say what we want from them. Um, but, you know, it's hard to say how that will go, particularly, you know, we're in this crisis kind of moment right now, um, and people are relying more than ever on the kind of hardware and software that's been developed by these tech companies. So uh, it's very easy also to imagine them, you know, kind of gaining more, more power uh, to kind of shape the landscape. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing more and, and uh, it's something I want to touch on a little bit later, but more reliance on the gig economy, uh, more reliance on Amazon. Um, I think, you know, at least starting to have conversations about um, these firms and what they're doing. You know, you look at uh, someone like Elon Musk, who just reopened the, the, the Tesla uh, factory today, I think, under weird circumstances. Or what I, I don't know how I didn't know this. I feel like I should have, but 
Um, the Amazon uh, Web Services, the Amazon Cloud Services, has like a six billion, six hundred billion dollar contract with the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. I don't so. Know if it's Six hundred billion. I'd I'd have to look that up. I don't know the I have exact look. number. I have um, I have a six hundred here. I should have, I should yeah. have notated it better. But but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and I think um, you I think know it must, might be six hundred million. But yeah, fair it's, enough. They're, they're they're a big customer. <laughs> yeah. So so really, the the money and the innovation is being uh, sort of co opted on one hand by um, the CIA and 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 the military industrial complex, and on the other hand by us just willingly giving up our our information to them um, and the story is not really being told. So we're not making any demands on these companies to like, you know, protect our stuff or to act in a way that we would like uh, whatsoever. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, it's uh, the point you make there about Amazon and its relationship to the U S government is a really valuable one. And I think actually we can look um, at a lot of other examples. Um, Amazon is one Palantir, uh, which is funded by the CIA and has done a lot of work for the NSA, uh, basically helping, um, you know, covert ops and, and spy uh, operations. It works. It's done a lot of work for ICE. And now it's it's been contracted to actually be a central player in developing um, a platform to fight the pandemic, right? So we see this very tight relationship between tech companies and the U.S. government that's, you know, related to a lot of shadowy stuff happening um, outside of the United States um, in terms of kind of uh, geopolitics, but also, you know, in terms of using data to surveil uh, the U.S. population. So I think this is something that we should all be, you know, not afraid to just talk about and, uh, you know, you know, talk about it with our friends and make it a, a topic of conversation because it's often kind of just forgotten about or, you know, kind of pushed aside because it's, it's you know, anyway, yeah. No, I agree. And I think that's the, the most important reason to have these conversations is that people have to sort of reckon with what's happening really before we can start to decide what demands we're going to make and sort of what political impact any of this can have. Uh, is to sort of look at it in a in a, a clear-eyed way and, and see what's you know see what's happening. Um, I think one of the other examples, which is which is uh, you know something that uh, a platform that I don't particularly use, but I know it's it's widely used, is Instagram. And are they still using their data to develop facial recognition software for folks, or is that something they've stopped? Uh, is that I know one of the one of the firms was doing that as part of their data, and I don't know if that's continuing or not. Well, Instagram is owned by Facebook, um, and Facebook has some of the most um, sophisticated facial recognition um, capacity in the world. So certainly, all of that data. Anytime you're posting a photo to Instagram, you know that uh, that data is being stored forever and used in a variety of ways. Um, and a lot of other companies, um, like Clearview AI, for example, uh, which has also been roped into um, this kind of effort, um, you know, they also have been scraping the web for photographs. And you know, a company like Clearview AI, which does facial recognition, um, sells its services to law enforcement agencies all over the country, and in a very kind of shadowy arrangement, right? It's not it's kind of a gray area in terms of what's actually legal. What are our rights when it comes to facial recognition? How are police departments 
uh, allowed to use facial recognition. This is all stuff that's kind of right now, um, there's no clear kind of policies of what companies are allowed to do and what law enforcement is allowed to do. So there's this, this kind of sweet spot for companies who want to get in and, and, you know, get a lot of new customers. But again, this is, you know, big questions about what actually happens to your data, right? When you're, you're just having fun with your friends, posting some photograph of you yourself or, you know, some food you're about to eat, but it, it gets added to this very, um, you know, intricate and comprehensive personal profile of each of us that's updated continually day after day, year after year. And I think that this is um, something that needs to stop. Yeah. And this is something, something else I'm sort of um, interested in because I was sort of tangentially attached to it when I was, uh, you know, in the banking industry here in Wilmington um, is just is big data and machine learning and algorithms and basically how all of this data suck is then, you know, sort of applied um, in ways that are just, uh, you know, they can be determined by any such thing. And it's very difficult to tell. Um, now, you know, one of the silver linings is that banking particularly at least has some rules. So they are governed by Reg B and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and things. I mean, it's not exactly, you know tough regulation but it's something um but there are other other you know other places that are sort of uh, freewheeling um you mentioned axiom um there's a lot of companies that that know you know literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data points about everybody yeah it's it's actually pretty incredible just um you know you brought up the example of axiom the amount of data that they have on literally billions of users now. They've expanded incredibly in the last decade. They used to have maybe, you know, a thousand, three thousand data points on each, you know, on maybe, you know, several million Americans. Now they have something like 10,000 data points on, uh, you know, I think about a billion people, which is really impressive, right? So these kind of third party data brokers, they sell this data to companies, uh, you know, like Google and Facebook, they buy they buy data from third-party data brokers to to supplement their own data. And all these smaller apps, you know, that you give permissions to when you use them on your phone, right? This is all creating these huge kind of profiles that um, you know different companies have. But you know, of course, I think it's also important to remind ourselves that um, not all companies have the same amount of data. And some of the big companies uh, like Google, they, they are very um, careful about their data. They don't just sort of hand it out, right? They, they have a lot of data that no one else actually has access to. Yeah, I mean, proprietary data, um, you know, as probably people can guess or, or know, is, um, is cherished um, because, you know, the, the, the way that can be leveraged is extremely lucrative. And so, you know, it's it's definitely guarded and and uh, and if it is sold, it's sold at quite a price. Um, so it is an interesting um, sort of situation. I I'm also interested in how that is used for targeting ads and targeting posts. Um, we've had some situations here locally in politics, for example, where uh, sort of like astroturf groups, uh, you know. Uh, 
a better Delaware or, you know, a consortium for better business or whatever it is, um, will be able to uh, target really locally. It's, and it's a little bit easier here because it's sort of a, a very niche sort of market and a, and a small place um, to target um, different advertising or target different stories that look like maybe news articles, but they're actually sort of propaganda um, directly at people sort of on Facebook. You know, and it can get down to very small groups of people. You know, I I heard a, a story, and I'm not perfectly sure it's true, but I think it illustrates something that certainly people should look out for. And perhaps Carl knows um, whether or not this is true. But uh, there was an issue last term about uh, gun rights in Dover, in our capital, and uh, there was demonstrations, obviously um, against whatever gun control it was. Uh, but several uh, legislators and staff folks, like maybe just 20 folks, were targeted for a particular uh, news item that was maybe like an advertisement, um, sort of uh, sort of scaring folks into a particular position on a particular piece of legislation. And I found that just uh, fascinating, but also very scary. Um, that you could pinpoint, you know, maybe 20 or 30 people in a situation like that with very, very targeted, very produced. I mean, it's propaganda, really. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, how much of that goes on and how much people understand it. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge kind of can of worms there. I think the way that I think about it is that... Um, this kind of ability for tech companies to control platforms and to target ads and also to just sort of control what you see when you use the internet based on your IP address, the type of computer you're using, your address, your zip code, your personal profile, right? Not all of us are seeing the same thing. It's geared toward us um, using algorithms. This is something that is very much um, a topic of concern. Um, particularly when we see situations like the one you're just describing where, you know, clearly um, fake news, if we, we'll just call it that, or, you know, stories that aren't true are, are being used to scare, um, you know, internet and smartphone users into making some choice. And we see that this can have really dire consequences, um, you know, certainly in Myanmar and the situation of, of the Rohingya, right, this kind of hate uh, hateful social media was used and it was actually ended up in mass violence against groups of people. So it's something that's really concerning in part because um, so many people rely on platforms to actually get news, um, yet a company like Facebook um, insists that it's not a media company uh, and therefore doesn't have to do the kind of boring, you know, fact-checking um, and ethical sort of decision-making that media companies have to do. So this is something that's really important. And to actually tackle it would involve a wide variety of, of, of sort of strategies, right? It's, we have to be multi-pronged in the sense of like um, educating uh, people about, um, you know, actually how the internet works and how algorithms work and what, what you see. Um, but also regulating and deciding sort of what we want these companies to be, um, actually supporting local journalism, right? So that people can get news from trusted sources. But I want to push back a little bit 
Um, because I think that there's a tendency to kind of chalk up political outcomes, for example, the election of Donald Trump, to this phenomenon of fake news or tampering with, um, you know, platforms or, or sort of, uh, you know, antics on Facebook, this type of thing, the Russians. I think it's important not to overstate um, the importance of that in shaping the political landscape. Yes, people may be seeing uh, news that's untrue, but I don't think we can sort of sum up the polarization of society today by pointing to this kind of technological explanation, right? It's, it's bots, it's the Russians using Facebook, this kind of thing. I think we should be very wary of falling too easily in that trap also, because actually we see a much broader kind of crisis around us uh, and a loss of legitimacy for the kind of status quo, kind of organizing economic system that's been in place for the past 10 years. So I would just push back a little on that and try to find a kind of middle ground for people. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's an excellent point. Um, I, I feel sort of as you do that I don't think, um, you know, phenomena like that or, or bots or whatever you want to say, I don't think that the the influence over politics or of a particular political decision or over a particular election um, is necessarily very great. Um, I certainly wouldn't think it, it swung, you know, a, a major decision one way or the other. Um, no, I, I think that's a point well taken. Um, my concern, and I think basically probably because of reading your book, is just that the, the power is there to do it. Um, it's done in different ways in different settings. Um, so uh, the most important thing is to sort of look and see what's going on and then start making decisions about understanding it, how to curtail it, how to even maybe open it up in some fashion. Um, but yeah, I, I think that the idea of looking at it like uh, determinism um, is, uh, is probably wrongheaded and actually it's probably not even neutral. It's it's probably a negative impact on people's minds going into it because, yes, you know, there is some sort of pressure of algorithms on the news you see or how you're targeted. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a uh, it's a it's a factor that has come into, you know, that's why you know, Donald Trump is president. You know, I, I certainly don't I certainly don't believe that. Your point, though, um, about the need for transparency, I think is really the key point here, because we actually see, um, you know, the negative impact of targeted ads outside the political sphere, right? If we think about, um, you know, and I use, I use this example in the book, um, housing ads are, you know, you know, real estate companies and landlords are able to place housing ads on Facebook that actually um, uh, break the law in terms of discriminating against potential tenants, whether they're, you know, uh, single mothers with children or uh, people who have, uh, you know, disabilities, right? You're, they, they're actually placing illegal ads. And so the, the takeaway there um, is a very simple one in the sense that, you know, we have to be transparent about what these companies are doing, what their policies are, what their algorithms are, and to just regulate them accordingly. I think there's this, there's this um, feeling that we, we can't understand what these companies, these tech companies are doing, that they're so sophisticated, that algorithms are beyond our comprehension. 
Um, and I think that comp tech companies are happy to foster that kind of narrative um, because it, it, it sort of instills a sense of helplessness when in fact, um, you know, average people are, are, are very much able to understand what these companies are doing, how they make their money, and what services their platforms provide, and we can, you know, regulate accordingly. I think that's really where we need to be, to be going uh, right now. No, absolutely, and you use an example, and I hope you can refresh my memory, but uh, you use an example that sort of illustrates exactly that. Uh, I think ProPublica had developed an app that was able to uh, pull the sort of pull pull data. Um, uh, I don't know if it was on Facebook or how they were doing it, but they were able to then show people how they were targeted, or they were able to sort of give people uh, a, a rundown of like what data was able to be collected and how it could be used. And it seemed to me pretty straightforward. Uh, of course, this scared the the that that was shut down. I, I think fairly quickly, but yeah, it was an example of being able to show people, you know, it's not actually that complicated. Um, it's just every, really everything you do, where you are, how you're using your phone um, is, are, you know, people are able to, you know, use that in sophisticated mathematical ways, but it's not too, too complicated to understand. Yeah, exactly. And I think this um, sense of kind of ownership over our data um, you know, and this kind of demand to have control over our data is something that's, I think that awareness is kind of growing. And so one of the directions that I, I push in the book um, is kind of, well, what do we actually want, right, in terms of um, control over our data and what, and what, what are our demands? And so I, I kind of um, argue in the book that, well, we should be very careful about how we actually frame our demands. And, and, and some of the kind of calls out there for people to um, be, able, be able to own their own data and make money from their own data, I think that these are understandable demands, but I think actually we should go a little bit further um, and really just push back on the mass collection of personal data um, at the root. Um, because I think it's, it becomes very hard to actually control um, and, and, and maintain privacy once all of this data is collected. I think we should actually be pushing for a more radical demand, which is to say that because this data is attached to us, right, and it can potentially have a real impact on our personal lives and, and our family, um, that we should really be much stricter uh, about how this data is collected and used. Yeah, that's exactly the note I made about ownership. Um, it's our personal data, and the first thing is we should decide what gets included. Uh, and if we decide, we should be compensated in some fashion. Um, as you said, it sounds like a radical idea, but I, I don't think when you start to pick it apart, it, it is very, very radical. Um, and the compensation idea is not so much... Uh, it's, it's more of a recognition that the money being made is based on you using your phone in some fashion. And so while, you know, it might not be, oh, you're getting paid uh, as you're doing a job, it's recognition of what's happening if you choose to, to have your information, uh, you know, hoovered up and used in that way. Yeah. So I think that um, I agree with, I, I agree with half of what you said. 
um, we should definitely be able to say um, in an easy way uh, exactly what information we're willing to share and not share. And there should be consequences um, for companies who actually break that agreement. Right now in Europe, um, they've actually, they're actually way ahead of us in terms of data privacy. Um, and if you visit a website um, that's a European website, you have to actually uh, click and give permission. This is better than nothing, but I think actually we should be pushing for, you know, a, a much more kind of blanket, um, you know, relationship where we state, you know, when we have our device, what, what data we want collected and not, and not have to constantly keep updating that and changing that because that becomes onerous. I think the idea of getting paid for your data um, that, and being able to sell your data, I understand the attraction, um, but the actual value individually, right, to each of us, the actual amount of money that we would get, um, I think would ultimately be a very small amount of money. Um, and it's setting a, a precedent that I, that I am very uncomfortable with. Um, if you think about the kind of incentives, right, uh, in the sense that, well, everything I do, right, with my phone or on the internet, if, if everything becomes a, a source of money for me, potentially, right, generating data, I think the kind of implications of that, long-term implications, are not really necessarily positive or healthy, right? It's this idea of actually um, commodifying these kind of spheres and activities that in the past were not commodified. And so I actually push back on that and say, let's actually not, uh, you know, bring these kinds of activities, me posting pictures of, of an outing or surfing the web. Like, let's, let's not actually bring these into the sphere of, of the marketplace. They are now, but we can actually, I actually argue for pushing them back out and making that not a, a source of profit making. Yeah, uh, that was, that's the, the third principle, but uh, let's get into the three. There's basically three, I think, what I would say, um, you know, points or, 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 or focus, focuses at the, at the end of the book. Um, the first one, uh, I hope you can sort of explain what you're getting at is what we, what the three, one of the first principles is don't perpetuate or obscure exploitation. And I, I am most interested in how, um, you tell some stories about the gig economy and sort of the phone becoming the boss. Like you don't really have a boss. It's just your phone is the boss. Um, and it, and it obscures, um, sort of this exploitative labor thing that's happening, um, which, luckily is starting to, I think, come to the fore. I think people are starting to understand that. Um, but again, I think the coronavirus sort of situation and everybody sort of relying on these things is going to uh, make it even more important to start talking about that. Yeah. So um, one of the kind of, and I actually kind of start out the book um, by thinking about, you know, the ways that we use our phones, right. And, and how, if we look at the ways that we use our phones, it can reveal some very unequal relationships and coercive relationships. Um, and like you said, the gig economy is a really good example of this. If you think about a company like Uber, initially, you know, the idea of driving for Uber is really attractive in the sense that they sell you on this idea of you can be your own boss. You can drive whenever you want, you can make decent money, and, you know, it's kind of this exchange, right? This equal exchange um, in the marketplace, and it's a win-win for both of you. 
Um, and this is this, you know, and so you're technically an independent contractor, right? It's like you own your own business. Um, and so you actually are paying, um, you know, all of your own expenses plus your own, you know, social security taxes, any repairs that you need to make on your vehicle. And Uber just, you know, provides this kind of platform. They take a cut from uh, your, from your rides and they're not responsible, right, for, for you or, you know, more broadly for the, the person who you're driving around or the community that you're in, right? If it's increasing um, congestion, increasing pollution, right? So this idea that, you know, we're creating these kind of new jobs, one of the ways that I talk about it in the book is that there's this very kind of nice story that we, that we tell, right? We have this really cute app, it's super easy to use, um, you know, it's, it's about freedom, it's about independence, it's about kind of rebooting the American dream and making, you know, being your own boss. Um, when in reality, it's, it's actually a very coercive relationship. And we, we see the, the really dark side of this, you know, with this, the spate of driver suicides, right? These, these, these individuals who are driving 100 hours a week and are, you know, in debt up to their eyeballs, and they're just kind of lost hope. Because actually the kinds of, um, you know, jobs that these kind of app jobs are not good jobs right? And, and having a phone as your boss, of course, the phone isn't your boss, right? Uber is your boss. Um, and California actually passed a law that recognized that and, and demanded that uh, gig employers like Uber and Lyft actually recognize their drivers as employees. Um, but the companies uh, said, they basically just said, we're not going to do it. Um, and they're ignoring the law. California actually just sued Uber um, and Lyft uh, for ignoring the law. So I think, again, uh, people are starting to be aware, um, but it's, it's this kind of funny situation where the awareness is, is really kind of lagging. I mean, right in this moment, you know, when Uber drivers are so essential, they're actually like driving people to the hospital when they're sick, um, you know, they, they're kind of frontline workers. Yet uh, it's been very hard for Uber drivers to actually get any sick pay. Um, they're, they're not, uh, you know, considered employees pretty much anywhere. Um, but Uber is busy, you know, trying to buy Grubhub, right, to get even bigger. Um, and they have like $8 billion in cash that they could be using to, you know, pay social security taxes rather than, uh, you know, you know, just forcing individual drivers to kind of fend for themselves and, and see if they can get unemployment from the U.S. government. So I think it's that's a very long answer. Um, but it's, you know, this kind of, if we look a little bit closer at the kind of relationships that our phones are facilitating, a lot of them are, are quite coercive. Yeah. Um, the second one is don't mask uh, bad, selfish, or immoral behavior. Um, I think everybody who has uh, had a uh, conversation on Twitter or Facebook probably understands this, but um, I, I'd be interested in your in your thoughts on that one. Well, I'm a sociologist, so um, I think about social norms a lot. And when, and when we think about the kinds of things that make us uncomfortable about smartphones and the way we use smartphones, often it's it's not something that's so obvious 
uh, like the Uber example, where it's clear that Uber is employing these people and not paying them what they're worth or, tr or treating them as they should treat them, which is employees. Sometimes the types of behaviors and norms that we see perpetuated uh, through our smartphones are a little uh, mushier, right? Uh, yet they're clearly harmful. Um, and, and in the book, I actually talk about um, how our smartphones and the ways that uh, women and men use them um, can actually perpetuate kind of sexist and patriarchal relationships. Um, and I talk about the example of teens and sexting, right? So most parents, and I have two daughters, uh, would be absolutely horrified um, if, if they found out that their child uh, was, you know, sending a naked picture of themselves or a risque picture of themselves to another peer or someone in their, you know, in their peer group. Um, but what we actually see in the kind of conversation and uh, you know, norm enforcement and, and, and the ways that we discuss, discuss the problem of sexing is that it's very much, um, it's a very different message whether you're talking to teenage girls or teenage boys, right? And so for girls, we see a whole language of shaming um, and girls sort of lacking self-esteem and making the wrong choice and being in charge of policing uh, the exchange, right? Even if they're not the ones who sort of um, you know, shared the photo with everyone, right? They're the ones who are punished in terms of, um, you know, their relationships with, uh, you know, adults and, and, and peers around them. Whereas boys oftentimes, you know, when they send a risque uh, picture of themselves, uh, it's kind of laughed off. Oh, boys are just being boys. Um, and it's kind of accepted as, a, as the kind of normal behavior. If they share a picture that was just meant for them, there are very little consequences, even though they're, you know, abusing someone's trust and, 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 uh, the, 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 and their privacy. So I think that's one example, right, of this kind of situation where, uh, you know, the ways that we police, uh, you know, our, the use of our phones and the types of norms that we're, that we're allowing to develop through our phones can, can perpetuate these kind of deeper uh, divides. And so I just kind of wanted to draw attention uh, to that. Um, and when we're thinking about, well, how do we actually use phones better? It's not always just a clear case of what to do, but rather to think about how we need to update, you know, our social norms with each other to, to actually respect each other uh, using smartphones. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to frame it because regardless of the whether you whether you talk about sexting or any other sort of kind of interaction the interaction on your phone or in social media has just taken what was a patriarchal sort of situation and just amplified it so that you know the the, the girls or the women in these situations are the ones who are almost entirely responsible for policing the engagement or policing the interaction and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's as it's been uh, now amplified. And so, yeah, it's something that people really need to, to, again, try to look at and reckon with because it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's, uh, it's poison, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think that it really, the, the shaming of girls or the unequal shaming of girls, I think, really bothers me because it perpetuates rape culture. But at the same time, I, I really encourage people in the book, um, you know, 
I, I really encourage people to think about, you know, not just the negatives, right, uh, of, of the smartphone technology, but to really think about how it's being used. And I think that actually the juxtaposition between, you know, the potentially liberating uh, power that phones can have for adult women, right? Many women use phones to increase their kind of autonomy and choice when it comes to finding a partner, right? But you see such a clear difference between the whole language um, and, and sort of norm policing around adult women uh, compared to teenage girls, right? And so I think it's really important to kind of just tease out. And, and most of it's just kind of like making people aware, right? If we think about our phones not as causing this problem or driving this change, but rather reflecting these kind of broader social relations, it allows us to, you know, see these dynamics that maybe we didn't see before. Yeah, and that brings us to the third one, the third principle, which, uh, unlike the first two being negative, this one's a positive one, do, uh, and it's about um, the digital commons. And you mentioned earlier about um, looking at, at whatever we can do to decommodify uh, the interactions, whatever we can do to decommodify, uh, you know, the Internet. Uh, I know there's a lot, there's been talk maybe in the last two years about sort of looking at it in a public utility framework and saying it's a, it's a utility that sort of everybody should should get in some fashion and be able to use it in the same way as everyone else. Um, yeah, so I'd like to you to talk a little bit about um, the commons and, uh, and decommodifying. Yeah. Um, so I think, it, I mean, it, it'll, it'll be clear to you because you read the book, but just to be clear to your listeners, I'm not an anti-tech person. I have a smartphone. I was, I would say, like a middle adopter. I was not an early adopter, um, but I have one. I use it, and I think that the internet is great. I think that digital technology is potentially, you know, something that can be really liberating for people, even in this, even in the ways that we use technology right now. Right, our smartphones. The fact that you see people around you um, staring at their phones all the time. It's not just because they're addicted right? It's because their phones provide them something really valuable. So I really push, you know, in the book to argue that we should sort of, you know, demand that our phones be something that is for us, right? And whether that's, um, you know, making uh, social media and, and search and, 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 you know, Google, all the services that Google provides, right? Recognizing these as a utility, um, I think that that's definitely something we can push. This is a conversation that I think we have to have, right? I'm not saying necessarily what should be done, but this concept of the digital commons, I think is important, right? Because it reminds people of this very basic but important fact that when we're using the internet, right, or, or we're using our phones and we're using social media, we're doing these things not because we're trying to make money, right? We're doing them because we want to learn, we want to laugh, we want to connect, right? This is some very like fundamental impulses that we have. Yet the architecture of these, you know, digital landscapes are designed for making money these now, right? But it doesn't have to be that way, right? That's the kind of argument I'm making here. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, a lot of this infrastructure and science and knowledge that goes into making this sort of digital reality is taxpayer funded it's it's you know uh it's ideas and technology that come out of universities right um it's it's this all of the 
kind of data and information and content that we create that makes the that makes these platforms rich and useful right this is something that we all contribute to so i really encourage people to to kind of take it and say this is something that can be ours and that we can share and use for people right not for profit making perfect well nicole thank you very much for joining us um i appreciate it i i really enjoyed your book uh, it's available at Beacon and, and other independent places and not uh, anywhere else but independent places. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if, you must, if you must get it at a place I won't name just so you buy it, that's fine. But I'm not going to advocate for that. I'm just saying. Um, but again, um, thanks a lot. And uh, maybe we'll uh, speak again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rob. This was fun. Yeah. Have a good evening. Right. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye.